welcome to the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders Podcast from TrainingIndustry.com. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders Podcast from TrainingIndustry.com. I'm Taryn H., Managing Editor of Digital Content at Training Industry. Hi, and I'm Scott Rutherford. Before we get started today, I'd just like to say that this episode of the Business of Learning is sponsored by Training Industry Research. As a training professional, your job is to effectively manage the business of learning. You probably listen to this podcast to gain insights on L&D trends being used by some of the most innovative thought leaders in our market. But did you know that Training Industry also provides data-driven analysis and best practices through our premium research reports? Our entire catalog, including reports on topics such as deconstructing 70-2010, women's access to leadership development, learner preferences, and the state of the training market, just to name a few, can be found at trainingindustry.com slash shop research. New insights create new ways for L&D to do business. Let Training Industry Research Reports assist you in taking your learning initiatives to new heights. Go to trainingindustry.com slash shop research to view our entire catalog. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to share with you that this will be my last episode of The Business of Learning. So while I'm moving on to other projects, I'm very happy to introduce Sarah Gallo. She'll be taking over as co-host of the podcast with Taryn. Sarah is one of my colleagues on the editorial team, and she does a lot of great writing for the website. Sarah, welcome to the Business of Learning. It's great to be here. Today, we're talking to two guests about a topic that's always relevant, but especially so in today's digital environment. One of the most well-known and popular models in learning and development is 70-20-10, and recent research by Training Industry updated the model to the 55-25-20 model, and it really reinforced the importance of social interactions and collaboration as a part of the employee's learning experience. So we know that employees respond well to social and on-the-job learning, but from the perspective of the training manager, this kind of learning creates an issue of control and curation, as learners may access content that may not meet the organization's standards because it may be out of date, or maybe it's just plain wrong. How can you balance the need to have content appropriately vetted and curated? To answer this question and more today, we're speaking with Lauren Harris and Juliana Stancampiano. Lauren is a training and development manager at the University of Colorado Boulder and a certified professional in training management. Juliana is CEO of Oxygen Learning and author of Radical Outcomes, How to Create Extraordinary Teams That Get Tangible Results, which was published earlier this year. Juliana and Lauren, welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. This is Lauren. Thank you. Yeah, and this is Juliana. It's great to be here as well. And it is such a popular topic. So let's start off with the basics. How do you define social learning and how does it relate to content curation? Uh, maybe Lauren, let's start with you. Sure. Um, so when it comes to social learning too, I think I have a little bit of a different definition as where I think really folks are out there just trying to put pieces together in the workplace. And when they're trying to onboard to a new role or they're trying to learn a new um, you know, knowledge subset or understand how the culture works or how to interact with others, it just organically happens, right? So I don't know that there's as much hands-on all the time, whereas it's just happening all the time, right? So people are out there engaging with their colleagues. They're watching how people engage in the organization. They're picking up those unspoken cues as to what's acceptable and what's not and where people go to and where they don't and those types of things. So I think I have a little bit more of a maybe informal um, and authentic uh, definition of social learning. So I'll pause there. 
Yeah, that's great, Lauren. I think I would just tag on to that and agree and kind of pull it back. My definition of social learning has always been, you know, it's something that we've been doing since we could talk as humans. Essentially, that is the first kind of recognized time when we can explain something to somebody else um, so that they potentially don't do or make our mistakes. And this is like very rudimentary, like, hey, the red snakes are going to bite you <laughs> and like you could die um, type of learning, which uh, through time has accelerated. And now we're, at a, we're in a time where our sophistication with social learning is extremely high and the amount of knowledge that's kind of known from a society perspective is very deep. And so um, that kind of tags into, if you look at the corporate uh, view of that and, and pull it around to probably most of your audience, um, we're going to learn a lot through talking to our peers, talking to our managers, talk, you know, listening to the people that are in organizations or in roles um, that we aspire to be in in order to learn and to get information uh, as we move forward. So that's kind of my view of, of social learning and a very fast evolution of it. <laughs> so, so that all makes sense. And, and I think that the challenge then comes in is, is you know, our jobs are uh, to uh, impose structure on that, right? So, so maybe let me phrase the question this way. Who should be responsible um, to curate learning content? Is that a training manager, the instructional designer? Uh, is it self-curated by the learner, or, or should it be its own role that, that focuses on, on that particular challenge? Maybe, Juliana, do you want to start with that one? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in on this. So we do a lot of um, corporate work at Oxygen, and I would say it's not actually one person's role, but it is maybe one person's role to facilitate the dialogue between a lot of different stakeholders. And we look at it from um, the business as an entity and so what's the strategy what direction are we moving we look at it from to your point the audience that you're creating something for um, what are their needs and what's going to work for them and then we also look at it uh, potentially depending on the role that you're you're curating content for through a customer lens and what their needs are if somebody's in a customer service role or if they're in a sales role in an external facing role so um, we look a lot of times at our roles being the facilitators of figuring out the, um, those three things so that we can then uh, curate the content in order to meet the needs of that, those three prongs versus one person. I don't see it as a linear path, but when you bring those three things together, we found a lot of success in doing that and then creating it. Uh, curating content specific to the role that somebody's expected to be able to do um, and then you can also measure it to your point earlier about, um, you know, how do, we, how do we figure out if people are out doing social learning and then there's this content, what if it's not right or, or accurate to what we want somebody to be doing? Um, when you create something that is very role-centric, you can create a way to measure it um, through knowing what somebody needs to know and do at different points in time during their role. And Lauren, do you want to jump in on that? Absolutely. Um, I thought that was very eloquently put and I, I fully agree with Juliana is that there is not one owner. Um, coming from an internal consultant, if you'd like to call me that, whereas I work as, uh, you know, across campus, but I'm not an 
you know, I don't live in any one department. I think my main role of helping my clients understand the content that is best needed to solve their solutions is really by asking great questions. Oftentimes, folks will come to me with a solution that they think that they need to solve the problem that they think they have. And after we go through a pretty robust consultation process, we identify that maybe the problem they're identifying is actually not the underlying issue. And then the solution that they were identifying doesn't actually get at anything they're hoping to accomplish. And so I think by being able to have those really robust conversations and get to true what is the problem that we're trying to solve, what is the need that exists, and then what is the content that's best going to support that. Definitely. And where does that content come from? How have you seen organizations or your own organization obtain, create, manage, and share content? Yeah, that's a great question. We curate our content from a variety of areas and industries and platforms. So one is definitely I have a, you know, a team of trainers and a team of OD consultants. And so we have a lot of expertise just in and of ourselves that we know where to pull from when we are creating content such as, you know, coaching or leadership development or um, some of those bigger soft skills components. That's definitely the world I live in is the soft skills world. And then we um, partner with a lot of external vendors such as, you know, training industry, such as Vital Smarts, such as um, LinkedIn Learning. Uh, our LMS is Skillsoft, so there is a lot of built-in content there as well. And I am lucky to work on a higher ed campus, and so I have, you know, a plethora of experts and research happening at my fingertips. So even being able to pull on uh, just the, the amazing ideas and brains that exist at this organization is another uh, place where we curate our content. For sure. And Juliana, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think that's great. And I love that we're coming at it from a couple different lenses. And the, the university, when you asked about the content uh, there, it's like, wow, you, yeah, to your point, there's so many experts that you have all around you, which is, is fantastic. So we do a lot of similar things uh, with clients. So I don't know that it's necessary to repeat it, but obviously there's a lot of different areas where we can curate content. I think what we have found to be the most important thing in, in curating the content um, is ensuring that um, the, the content is created for the person and it's easy for somebody to access and to get. And so, you know, it may be for, and so we do a lot of role-based um, enablement or learning where it's created for that specific role. And then they know that it's created specifically for them, be it, you know, a video that was pulled from a TEDx talk or an article that was written in training industry or, um, or something that was created, you know, through the, their own subject matter experts, which we do a lot of work with um, internal to a business is, you know, the interviews of subject matter experts and then pulling kind of extracting out of them what they know and creating something that is um, easy for somebody to digest and understand, retain and be able to do something with. So that's kind of the, the view that we typically take to curating that content. But many different areas, we're lucky that, you know, content is uh, just about everywhere today, which has its ups and downs. And I would say that this is spot on to talk about content curation because we're finding more and more with clients that that's actually the battle is that there's so much to pick from that where do people start? And a lot of times if it's overwhelming for them to navigate, um, they will just go to the peer method of what Scott was talking about earlier, and then we don't, we don't quite know if they're going to get what they actually need or not. Um, so the more we can curate for people in their role, I think the better. Yeah, 
And what are some common challenges organizations face when it comes to social learning and content curation? I think Juliana hit on probably, you know, the biggest barrier, which is just, you know, the the digital age and the information age of the internet and where we live right now. And that you can, you know, access anything at your fingertips at any time, practically anywhere in the world. And while there's a lot of benefit that that brings, obviously, that also identifies a, a pretty large barrier when we're trying to direct folks to a, a, specific, a specific idea or outcome or process or way of doing things. Yeah, and I would just I'd add on to that that uh, we've done a lot of this work in a couple of very large organizations and the management of the content. I think this is kind of uh, will be an evolution if we're not already seeing it as kind of that librarian role. Um, we talk about it a lot as performing a service for an organization. And so the internal L&D group or sales enablement group will be um, providing different services to the business and to the people that they support so that they're constantly updating and servicing the content that exists for somebody. And I think that that's also a crucial element. There is so much content out there and then So we curate it all, but then it can't just sit on the shelf for a year because in a year in this world, it's like super, it's very old at that point, right? Absolutely. Um, And so how do we keep it up? And so we do a lot of work in the serviceability of the content and how are we reviewing videos that are created or whatever that might be and and creating things in smaller um, kind of files so that they are easier to update and keep fresh because what we also find you can curate content, but if the content's, you know, out of date or not relevant, people then also stop coming back to it. Right. So, um, it's a, it's a massive job in today's world to curate content is what we've been finding. I think the kind of the elephant in the room here is the emerging role of artificial intelligence and machine learning in content curation. How are your organizations or, you know, other organizations that you work with uh, using these new technologies in content curation? So I, I'm happy to uh, take a stab at that one because I think it'll be a, a fairly short answer. We're, we're honestly <laughs> not doing a lot right now. <laughs> so, you know, we are, we are starting to dip our toe into, into those amazing abilities and what it's going to bring for us. We really have a big focus on what the future work is going to hold and what the future skills of successful employees are going to be and then how we then curate content to help enable that. So I think from a L&D perspective, it's more we're trying to understand what are the skills that our employees are going to need to be able to interact with machine learning, to be able to interact with AI, to be able to utilize it as a function of their job. So I think that that's kind of the baseline we're taking right now. We're not really utilizing it at this point uh, to, uh, to inform our learning right now. It's more the flip side of how we upskill our employees to be able to engage with the future technology technologies. Yeah, so I can add on to that. Um, We have a few clients that are stepping into it and using it. Um, I think the thing with AI and machine learning is that it takes time for it to learn to. (laughs) So um, it's not an immediate answer. And um, I think in my mind, that might be the bigger elephant in the room that people aren't talking about, because everybody's talking about machine learning and AI and it kind of, you know, being potentially the next silver bullet, as we say, but um, it's not either. Uh, It takes time and it takes usage of the content and um, numbers to amass behind that, which just, again, takes more time. 
before the machine becomes smart, um, you know, or the, the, the learning um, gets there so that it can then start proposing things. Essentially, what we're seeing clients working towards is to make it so that people are starting to use it. They are tracking it on the back end so that eventually, say if you're in sales and you're in some part of an opportunity, um, it potentially pops up some content that says, hey, you know, 600 of your other peers needed this document at this point in this opportunity. Perhaps it, this is going to be the most useful thing for you right now. Or, hey, here's a reminder of something that um, you, you might want to address with your client at this point. And, you know, I think through time, that's going to be extremely helpful. Um, you know, similar with, you know, searching for a soft skill, they may then get whatever it is that's, you know, people have used over and over again. So, you know, to Lauren's point about if there's a process that we need somebody to know or a soft skill that we're training on. And um, I think soft skills are a really interesting point to, to point out because a lot of times people ask us, well, you know, which one should we use? And I always just say, well, just pick one <laughs> because I think the biggest thing is consistency um, of what people are learning across an organization so that there's a common language and understanding versus one being better than the other. There's, you know, that's not necessarily um, as much the case today as it used to be. So I think, you know, there's some of that, that the more that you can get people to be using what you want them to be using as an organization and the AI and the machine learning pick it up in the background, then the more it'll be fed um, in the future as time goes on. So we're seeing it slowly adopted, I guess, to say throughout the organizations that we're working with. Yeah. And what do you think is next for these technologies? Oh, man, they're going to try to read our mind. <laughs> right? Eventually, and, and preempt us. Um, but I think I, I actually think the technologies are going to learn a lot about how people are consuming, and what they do consume. And that's probably going to be the most helpful for us. Um, in order to really, so I think, you know, to the point of what we were talking about earlier with the content curation is to slim down our libraries and the content that we have to like, what somebody really needs um, to be successful in the role that they're in. Uh, and that's what I'm probably most excited about what that's going to be able to do for us. But I'm sure people are excited for different reasons. So <laughs> Lauren, what are you guys excited about at the university? Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing I'm excited about is, well, one, I think people are beginning to uh, overcome this fear that a, a computer or a robot or a machine is going to replace their job, especially for folks that live in the world that I work in, right? We're a very intellectual environment. Uh, you know, we think a lot, we create, we design, um, we don't do a lot of automation. We don't do, you know, a lot of um, the same thing over and over again. Now, with that said, for those types of roles that do exist on our campus, I think that's what people are most excited about is the ability to automate some of of these duties that seem very cumbersome to then free up our ability to even think more and create more and innovate more. And so really to get some of those things that drag us down on our to-do list that maybe this great robot or machine or whatever it may be could do for us much more seamless so then it frees our time up. I think that's the excitement I'm, I'm, I'm feeling at our organization. 
Right, so going back to uh, training industries research on the 70-20-10 model, uh, we found that there, there weren't really significant differences between the different generations when it came to how much they're using social and on-the-job learning. Um, and we'll put a link in the show notes for um, the research and a couple of articles talking about it. But I wanted to ask both of you if, if you think that, in your experience, that generational differences aren't really significant when it comes to social and on-the-job learning. Yeah, I'm happy to uh, start with this one as well. I think I, I would agree with that. I don't know that I, one, I have a, <laughs> um, I don't love the generational theory anyways. I really feel like it's more um, life stages that we experience. Um, anybody, you know, in their 20s experiences similar things as somebody who's in their 50s and so forth. And so I think I would agree with that, that the generations might not have as much of an influence of the way that they're utilizing social learning, but really more what is the culture of the organization. And if the culture is driving that, then really no matter what or sorry, what uh, generation you come from, you are probably going to start adapting to that culture so that you can survive. I think additionally, what what my personal experience with working with really diverse groups in our campus is that really it's people's personalities, identities, and learning styles um, that have a bigger influence in that. So we have a large cohort of uh, pretty big introverts, as you can imagine, a large research in, um, industry here that maybe they aren't the ones going out as much, you know, talking to their peers or engaging one to one on one with another person, but maybe they are the ones that are going online and trying to get that content more through their own research and their individual time. So I, I would agree with that, that I don't think the generational differences have as much to play, but I think it, it's more uh, the differences come in people's learning styles, personalities, and identities. Yeah, so I would agree with what Lauren has said, and um, it kind of harkens back to the definition of social learning, right, is that we've all been doing it for as long as we can talk. So I think it just takes on different forms across different generations. Um, and then, it, and they all evolve, um, would, would kind of be my, my high level view of that. And I, I, a, I, I also think that it's great that you guys redid the research and I read that and I was so glad that somebody did an update on the research because I think things have, you know, shifted since it was, was first done. So I'm excited to have that link to send to people as well. But I would, I would also add, I, I did some work actually with a group, um, a few times around the, the difference in the generations because one of uh, the larger companies in this cohort was felt like they were struggling with this. And when we really mapped it out between the three different generations in the workforce, they found that um, the older workforce and the younger for workforce were actually more similar than the, than the Gen X basically that sat in the middle. And I find that kind of fascinating because I think we think that it's, um, you know, the, the more of the two on the ends that are very different and they're actually very similar when it comes to values and how they do things. Um, and in part, there's that social learning aspect where they're, um, they tend to want to talk to people or figure things out with their peers. Um, millennials will just go online more to, you know, to find it. So they have a different medium maybe in which they do the social learning, but those two groups are heavily doing social learning. 
um, it's more the Gen Xers that we found to be kind of the sad group in the middle <laughs> that feel like they're, they're like really having to push it themselves forward versus, um, you know, kind of the more the lone group than figuring things out together. So that, that was fairly fascinating. But I think that as we evolve, it just, you know, there's different mediums that we're doing different social learning in and some will catch up and, you know, from a generational perspective, some won't be interested in some of the things that come out. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, the learning that can happen between the youngest generation, and the workforce, which is slowly shifting actually um, with the oldest there's a lot of cross learning that can be done there. And that's what other organizations are finding is that when they pair these two generations up, there's a lot of benefit for both sides. It might be my bias as a member of the millennial generation since we're <laughs> complained about so much, but I, I love what you both are saying about how different generations can learn from each other. And also I think, you know, how we also, you know, have a lot in common um, across generations um, and that things like personality and life stages also really count for something. <laughs> Yeah, it, there, it was such a shock for the two groups to be so similar. And then when they realized that their values were actually very similar, um, there was a, a shift in the group of kind of mutual respect for that, even though it's maybe done or approached in different ways. And I think that's what is, you know, kind of fascinating about it. Um, when you do look at the generational work is, um, I think we pick on the differences a lot. But when you look at the similarities. Um, there are also a lot of similarities across generations. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, definitely. And going off of that, how has your organization used social learning to create and share better content? I'm happy to start uh, with Go that one. Mm -hmm. I do think, so I primarily provide learning solutions through still face-to-face instructor-led. And so I think the number of a huge shift I've seen in my learning organization and with my trainers and OD consultants is that we have been intentionally embedding much more interactivity as far as sharing experiences with one another in the room. And we find consistently, we always get amazing feedback from our participants that that is the, the number one thing that they took away was being able to learn from their other colleagues from across campus of what they're doing. And so I think just the more and more that we can build in those those moments of being able to pull, right, it goes right back to the adult learning theory of pulling in the experiences that these wonderful people already have and being able to learn from one another in that capacity, uh, that really uh, thrives in this organization. I'm sure it thrives in many organizations, but particularly this one, we do see a, a, a very positive response response to that. So that's one way that we have done it in the instructor-led environment and in the classroom environment. And uh, the other way that we're trying to push out this from more of a holistic standpoint is really creating robust learning journeys for our folks across the organization. So fairly real specific, as Juliana was saying, depending on what level in the organization you sit in, here is a curated learning journey that would probably help you be more successful in your role, whether you're an individual contributor, newer to the organization, you're mid-level senior manager, you're you know, an executive leader. So here are some articles, TED Talks, instructor-led options, um, online videos, things like that. So really trying to give them a platform so that I, I think going back to Juliana's point, that they're not out there just trying to find all of this and cherry pick it themselves, but that we've laid out a, a really nice learning journey or you know, learning adventure for them that, that they can choose to go down. 
Yeah, that, that's great. So, and kind of jump off from there. So similar to what Lauren was saying, we've primarily done a lot of work within our different clients on what I, I think we would call in the learning space kind of multimodal modal experiences. So um, we've been talking about and, and do a lot of work of architecting the view of a role. So from the time somebody is being onboarded all the way through their development and potentially onto their next role, what does that end-to-end learning architecture look like? Um, and mapping it out. So this kind of links back to part of what I was saying about, you know, learning as a service, essentially, if you have it mapped out and you know where everything sits that somebody goes through along the way, um, it's easier to keep it up to date and fresh from a content perspective. But what happens essentially in all of these architectures that we create is that there are different things that people are going to read, watch, go through, or be in the room together for or to learn um, along the way. And what we've found is that So we've also created online communities for individual roles so that they can go on and talk to peers at different levels in the role um, in a more immediate sense if there's questions. And we found that to work really well. Um, But it's not an either or. Um, So to Lauren's point, we'll also still continue to do uh, in-person events. But those, those kind of events tend to be more of a workshop where people are able to review all of the material they've been through and talk through it with their peers versus getting fresh um, new content in that experience and expected to be able to do something with it. So it's really about cementing what it is that they're learning and how it's being applied on the job so that they can continue to apply and get better at something than it is about learning something new. So I think there's a lot of different uh, ways. The other thing I would say is that we've, we've used a lot of video from a peer perspective in online experiences so that people are hearing from people that have done the job before that have been successful in the role, talk about, you know, what, how it was they applied some process or how they ran some meetings or, um, you know, the different interactions that they had with um, their customers or their peers during meetings. So we've used a lot of that as well in order to bring concepts to life so that people can understand how it's actually supposed to be um, done on the job and, and they're more apt to then go do it. Um, so those are a lot of the different ways that we've seen kind of bringing this to life. And I think it's more weaving in all of the components together into a social learning architecture than it is, um, you know, something out, a, a loan thing or a loan program out there and then expecting people to engage around that program. Yeah, I think that's great. And what are some final tips both of you can leave us with for implementing social learning and content curation effectively? I would say um, definitely always start with the basics as far as when it comes to curating content and really knowing the needs of your organization, whether that's through a formal needs assessment or, again, great consultation conversations uh, with your, your learners and your leaders. Uh, but I think that that's one thing is really understanding the pulse of the organization, the, the issues, the gaps that they're experiencing, and really letting that drive the content curation versus the other way around of, oh, this is this shiny new thing. It looks really exciting. How do we, you know, make this fit into what our organization needs? So I am a firm believer of always going back to what's tried and true and what has been working well when it comes to, you know, needs assessment and understanding the gaps in the organization organization. And I think when it comes to um, the social learning aspect of it is 
I would say from my perspective, that opportunity really lies heavily on the manager of a unit. And how is the manager engaging around that as far as encouraging folks to interact with one another, partnering up buddies with one another, a new employee with more seasoned employee? Do they allow that time for people just to socialize and learn from one another? So I think that the being able to communicate the value add that those supervisors and direct managers have on creating the social learning environment is critical to success, especially just at such a large organization that I work at where we have over 8,000 employees. Yeah, that's great. And I would also um, kind of harken back to something that we said in the beginning. And I love, Lauren, that you said, you said I'm an internal consultant. And I think that that is a key uh, aspect that we've seen and we've implemented with other clients as well as for the enablement group or the learning group to to really see themselves as a consultant to the business to understand what's going on, how how the business works, how the different roles work in the business, and how do we support those, right? Because that's what we're really there to do is to, to support those roles so that they can go and do something for the business. Um, you know, whether it be a university or a nonprofit or a for-profit business, I think those are all very similar. And there's a lot of money that's spent, you know, in, in the industry. And so how do we make sure that what we're creating is um, relevant, you know, easy to consume for the audience that we're consuming it for? So I love going out and figuring out, you know, where do the people hang out and where do they learn on a regular basis and try to infuse um that knowledge into what it is that we create for them. So it doesn't feel like they're going, you know, somewhere else for like kind of the company learning versus just being on the job. And I think that's a, um, something that Josh Burson has talked a lot about is the learning and the flow of work. And I think understanding where people are coming from and where they're at is, is a huge aspect to under, you know, to being able to create something that's easy for them. So that consultative facilitative mindset, not going in and thinking that you have the answer, um, is really important today so that we can really curate what people need. Because if, uh, if we don't do that and kind of create that for them, they will go find it somewhere else. <laughs> and then it's not a great place to be in. So uh, knowing your business, knowing your audience, knowing the customers of your business, I think are really, really key uh, for any learning professionals today with social learning and the content curation aspect. Hey, well, Lauren Harris of the University of Colorado Boulder and Juliana Stancampiano of Oxygen Learning, thanks so much to you both for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Scott, it's been so great hosting this podcast with you, uh, but Sarah, I'm so excited to have you on board. Well, from my perspective, it's been a privilege. I'm looking forward to becoming a listener rather than a co-host, and I wish you both the best. If you're enjoying this podcast, we encourage you to rate it and leave us a review on your podcast app to help other learning leaders find us. And as always, you can find resources we mentioned in this episode in the show notes at trainingindustry.com slash trainingindustrypodcast. See you next time. If you have feedback about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future program, email us at info at trainingindustry.com or use the contact us page at trainingindustry.com. Thanks for listening to the Training Industry Podcast.